Hi, everyone. It's autumn, the time for harvest festivals and family reunions. And if you're planning on getting together with your family, you should protect yourself and them by getting an updated COVID vaccine. If you are 50 or older, you are at even greater risk for hospitalization and death, especially if you have a chronic disease. So get an updated vaccine now. If you need more information, talk to your doctor. Find updated COVID vaccines at vaccines.gov. We can do this. Paid for by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dear Asian Americans. Whether it is your first time with us or your 172nd, welcome to our show. My name is Jerry Wan, the host of Dear Asian Americans. I am joined by Patrick Armstrong, our producer and editor, who literally just got off the plane from his first trip back to Korea. How are you, man? I'm a little bit tired, um, but excited to hop on and do a little recording before I go to bed. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, you know, uh, we'd love to actually, you know, go deeper into sort of the things that you felt, learned, saw, heard, all these things. But today, we want to talk about our guest for today's episode, John C. Yang, who is the executive director of Asian Americans Advancing Justice, the one located in D.C. I know there are many geographical chapters there. But it was really nice to hear about a story of how somebody who went down a very traditional legal path uh, rose to the rank of partner in a big firm and then decided to sort of step back. You know, he was in the Obama White House for a little bit and then decides now or decided to now use his uh, gifts, experiences, contacts and just energy and mission to help our community. Uh, what were some of the things about his conversation that stick out to you, Pat? Yeah, I really enjoyed hearing his journey to advancing justice. I thought it was really interesting, but the thing that stuck out to me the most was the reason that drove him to get into law and, and get into practice, um, which was his citizenship journey. So having actually been undocumented for a specific period of time, and then him talking about going through that process and seeing kind of how the law works and can work for you and realizing, oh, that's something that I might be interested in, um, and then following up on that pursuit. So I thought that was really interesting just because I had recently or I've recently been, or in the past, I guess, <laughs> past year and a half been working towards the Adoptee Citizenship Act specifically for undocumented adoptees. And I really resonated with kind of what he was talking about and why that was a driver for him. So that was definitely something that stuck out to me. Yeah, you know, one of the things that um, is just a, a overall thought is there's always a lot of work being done for the community. There always has been. And if you're new to advocacy, if you're new to uh, wanting to help the community, if you're new because of what's happened in the last couple of years or the conversations that you and your friends are having is a little bit different, just know that people like John have been doing stuff like this for a very long time. And that, you know, so we are not rebuilding anything. We're not building anything. We are continuing to evolve and we stand on the shoulders of so many people who have been uh, laying the groundwork, particularly those folks in D.C. who have been advocating for us uh, with the federal government and different, uh, you know, influential organizations and people for a very long time. And so while it is understandable that many people can feel frustrated by slow moving bureaucracies and other things, know that there are people with large teams and histories and, and track record of doing what they can. In, in the lanes that are available to them to make our community uh, safer, uh, more enriched, our stories heard, wealthier, healthier, and, and all the things that I think we are advocating for. And so, again, big shout out to HHS for their support of our podcast. And 
You can also find out towards the end uh, where you can learn how to support um, Asian Americans Advancing Justice and the work that they do. And so without further ado, here is my conversation with John C. Yang of Advancing Justice. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Dear Asian Americans. Hope you are staying safe and healthy as we enter uh, another flu season, potentially another wave of COVID. What's on our minds a lot, too, um, as we navigate through October is the upcoming midterm elections. What does that mean for us? Um, Unfortunately, we continue to hear not so encouraging news both at home and abroad about the way that many of our community members, friends are are being treated. Um, And so I think it's just uh, a time where so many things are on our mind. Sometimes we feel helpless. Sometimes we find ways to get involved. Um, And and today I get to talk to somebody who has made it his life's mission to help advocate for all of us um, in front of uh, the, the scene sometimes, but many times behind the scenes to make sure that our voices heard, our community voices amplified in rooms where many of us may not be present. Um, and so I am so excited um, and really honored to share this conversation with John Yang, who is the president and executive director of the Asian Americans Advancing Justice uh, based in D.C. Hi, John. How are you? Very well. Thank you for having me, Jerry. I, I am so excited to talk to you. Um, I think the first time we actually ran into each other was at the COVID testing center right in front of the White House which I think is still a, a weird thing for me to just casually say that like that's how we met people or that's how we like first saw each other in real life, even though we knew of each other in the internet realm. So let, let's start off with how are things for you? You're based in DC. Um, you you know have witnessed and have been involved with advocating for the community through multiple uh, presidential administrations from different environments, and, and this year you know obviously it's felt like a breath of fresh air when we got to have that event in May, when we got to convene in person at, you know, conferences and things like that. And then just wanted to check in before we talk about, you know, life and work. How have you been doing the last couple of years? And um, are, are you optimistic about what's to come in the next few weeks, months, years ahead? Well, thank you for asking. I, I'm an optimist by nature. So on one level, uh, I am optimistic about the future. At the same time, I make no bones about the fact that it's going to be hard. Right. It's going to take a lot of work from all of us, uh, but that sort of we sort of keep our eyes forward. You know, we're, we're going to see better days. Sometimes people ask me, well, sort of do you, do you enjoy what you do right? in terms of the, the, the line of work I am here at Advancing Justice AAJC? And I oftentimes tell people, I can't say that I'm having fun. I mean, how much fun is it to have to advocate for our community when our community is see- receiving so much discrimination? So much anti-Asian hate. But do I find it rewarding? Absolutely. And so even though these last couple of years has been especially challenge- challenging, I feel very privileged and fortunate to be in the position that I am that I can do something about it. And, and to be frank, I think that's the way that many of us feel. Because um, I think many of us have come into this notion of an Asian American identity, perhaps for the first time in the last three years, let's say. Many of us were raised to be very proud ethnically. And sort of what is this Asian American thing that we now are being asked to identify as and, and to fight for us? What does that mean? Right. And and I think obviously that, that fight is so many different ways. You can fight with your vote. You can fight with, you know, using the law if you are, you know, skilled in that area or knowledgeable. We can also fight with our dollars and, and control who we get to empower economically. And just using our voice, whether it is physical voice in person 
or as many of us have learned, be very great at using social media to, you know, to educate and to empower other people. Um, but I think ultimately we know and we have got to know people like yourselves and your peers in different organizations who have been, unbeknownst to many of us, have been doing this work of advocacy in public places, in private places, behind the scenes, and, and really getting to know what the work has been like. And, and I think that's where we remain ultimately grateful to know that there are people like you and, and so many mutual friends of ours who, who have been doing the work. And, and so that it wasn't a very reactionary, hey, all these things are happening. Let's set up these new organizations or make new relationships. All these were in place. And it was just a matter of, you know, maybe perhaps the, the biggest spotlight to date to say, how do we help the people who've been doing the work, um, whether it's through donations or time or resources, and so I think I think it's incredible. Um, I think if somebody were to look at John, your resume, it's you know uh, undergrad law school, uh, a decade and a half in at a law firm, and then sort of this pivot in, into public service through a variety of you know different roles. W would love to understand how that person came to be. You know, how did John become this person? And and so would love for you to share with us. You know, uh, what you're comfortable with the Yang family story. How'd you all come to America? When, how, where, and um, how'd that shape your view of America and yourself in your earlier days? Sure. Thank you very much, Jerry, because I think talking about our histories is important, especially for the Asian American community. So my history starts with being born in Taiwan. Uh, I came to the United States when I was two years old. <laughs> I grew up in the Midwest. Uh, and so in many ways, I had a very typical Midwestern upbringing. Uh, and it was, this was during the 1970s. And so at that time, there are not a lot of Asian Americans uh, living, in, living in the Midwest. You know, I had occasion uh, about a year, year and a half ago, where uh, my, I was asked to look at my high school, high school yearbook. And I had forgotten that my graduating class, this was about 565 kids or so, I could only identify about four Asian Americans in wow. graduating class. And frankly, that was somewhat typical for that time. So, you know, growing up on one hand, I was very privileged. I don't want to I we did not grow up in a poor neighborhood. We came to the States uh, for my father's job. Uh, and so in that sense, that it was, like I said, a pretty typical uh, upbringing. But certainly growing up, I do remember being called chink. I do remember being called racial slurs. And I don't know if I would say I'm proud of it. I'm not in many ways, but I did get into a couple of fights because of that. Uh, so that was always part of my identity. Uh, you know, on one hand, I had it easier than a lot of people. On the other hand, certainly being Asian American was something that, that always was part of who I was. That's, I, I think many of us, um, regardless of where you live right now, if you are, I don't know, even let's say like 40 and younger, uh, it's really hard to fully appreciate and understand because we it's hard for us to uh, think about a time before the internet, right? Like, and long before social media as we know it, we even had, you know, social media networks, we didn't call them then, but, you know, like we, we got to connect with people and we got to seek content that we could feel at home with. You know, I, I think it's incredible because we were also, at least me, I, I it was hard. It, was, it wasn't that hard to like go to places, you know, uh, being fam very familiar with how to navigate the internet of looking for either places to belong or content to see. 
And so I make no um, you know, assumptions on how challenging it must have been, both both geographically, but also, you know, at a time when it also wasn't so safe to talk about us. And perhaps being told, like when you were, you know, I guess now when people say, hey, you don't belong here, like we can think of some places where we might feel a little bit more safe, right? Um, when we say go back to where you're from, we might have the confidence to say, no, this is my home. And even though there were clusters in the communities of Asian Americans, even back in the 70s and 80s, I think it's really, really, you know, I, I want folks who are listening to just think about how less safe we may have felt back then and certainly uh, less connected because of the lack of this network that we have now or to even report it, right? Like, because think about, you know, what, what would your teachers have said? Maybe they thought the same way as the people who said the same things, right? It's just tough to say. It's interesting that you bring up teachers because you're right. Like at that time, the 19, in 1970, the number of Asian Americans here in the United States just generally was right around 1%. Right now we're around 7%. So just by demographics alone, we are so much smaller. It's interesting that you bring up teachers because I actually had an experience when I was in seventh grade uh, that, that we were doing a math problem. It was actually a math game. Uh, where you're supposed to try to do math problems to connect from one side of the room, one side of this game board, the other side, it was done on the chalkboard. Uh, and I, I'll admit, I was kind of geeky. I, I liked math. I was kind of decent at it, but not to feed into stereotypes. Uh, and so I was doing this game against the teacher. And so what you're trying to do is when you solve problems, I, it might be like go or something. You also try to block the other person from getting to the other side of the board. And this teacher at one point, said, oh, I think you got the chink on me. What she meant was the chink in the armor, the hole. You found the hole to try to get to my side. Obviously, she didn't mean it as a racial epithet, but you can imagine what happened. Once she said it, all the kids, and I still get a little bit emotional thinking about this, all the kids said, oh, you know, and I was in seventh grade, right? Oh, man. I didn't know what to do. And I just kind of, I know I probably blushed and just kind of just stood there. But you're right. So the teacher didn't mean it. She apologized right away. Oh, I didn't mean it that way. And I'm sorry. I, this is what I meant by chain. Um, and, and I believe her. She was a good teacher. I don't blame her. But to, to your point, right, how it feels as a kid growing up, how isolating it can be, uh, I, I totally get that. And so I think about sort of, even our kids today, right? How they navigate because we're obviously much more multicultural now in most places, but we were also recognized that in some places we're not. Uh, but how just even one incident like that, you could tell even now when I talk about it, uh, it, it, it brings up certain memories. Uh, the impact that even one incident can have on any of us growing up. And, you know, and, and we're going to end up talking about your work quite a bit, you know, um, but, but I think just, Letting people know that it's okay to first feel those things and, and two, that it's safe to speak about it, you know, because I think when you're, when you're young, right, or you experience those things in your youth, uh, perhaps you, you have a little bit more confidence or even, I don't know, just um, the naivete to just speak up. And when we think about what our parents went through or what some of our older family members go through, they don't even have that wherewithal to know that even of what they're being called. And even if so, like, where do you go? How do you speak? And, and so, you know, I, I think that's really fascinating. And, and thank you for sharing that. That is, you know, obviously we've, um, 
we, we know the, the the power of that word in a very negative way. We've seen it in limelight, um, you know, with uh, a moment when ESPN published it on his front page after Jeremy had, you know, his, his moment. Um, and so t- tell us how you found yourself in law. Was, was that something that you wanted to pursue? I mean, you know, when I talk to uh, lawyers, engineers, or doctors who have now doing something else, we always make the joke of like, hey, man, like, did you just want to make your parents happy? Like, was that, you know, just checking the box or was it a safe route? Um, h- how did you end up choosing law as your academic discipline of choice and then pursuing it for the next, you know, almost two decades? Yeah, and I'll be honest, uh, part of it was I wasn't sure what I wanted to do coming out of college. Uh, and so I knew that law was, I don't know if you would call it a safe choice, but it was a very versatile choice. You could do a lot of things with it. And I, the other thing about it was, I, I, I will admit, I knew the power of laws. And, and this was through two things. One was because I'm an immigrant. My, my parents' English are okay. I, don't get me wrong. They're, they're, they're English coming, even coming to the United States was, was okay. But as you might imagine, as all of us know, as immigrants or children of immigrants, there are times that they encounter difficulties. And, you know, so sort of knowing the law and knowing the power of sort of how you use words, right, always resonated with me. So that part drew me to the law. Mm. Uh, the other part, and, and we'll probably come back to this theme as we talk about sort of uh, why I do what I do in a couple of different ways, was that. I was actually an undocumented immigrant. Mm. Uh, I was an undocumented immigrant from about the time I was nine until the passage of the Immigration Reform and Control Act of 1986. So this would have been when I was a senior in high school was when this was passed. And so I knew sort of like that's how I got my path to citizenship. And so this notion of laws and policies, I mean, even at that age, it did resonate a little bit with me. It's like, wow, you know, the laws can actually change lives. Mm. And again, I, I did not imagine at that time that I would necessarily be doing what I'm doing today. But I recognized how sort of, you know, having some understanding of that could make a difference. So that got me interested. That was sort of the entryway, if you will. Uh, and then when I went into law school, I decided, hey, this is actually kind of interesting. It was kind of fun. It was challenging, but, but in, in a good way. Did you know then that you could use a law for good? Because I, I think now I think, you know, there are people who um, choose law with the intent of bettering communities or using it as a tool. And again, these are things that we can say because we have so much more privilege, both individually and collectively as a community. But did you have any idea back then or was it and I'm not this is totally OK and even encouraged or just a path to find, you know, secure, safe, upwardly mobile, even enriching career opportunities so that you could improve your family's destiny. And, and I, you know, I think when we talk about the, the dichotomy of these two things, often the, the, the economic opportunity path is sometimes unfortunately shamed, but it, it shouldn't be, right? Like, because you came right. here, you had, you had a challenging upbringing, and here you are, you have an opportunity to go to law school, to go to a firm, to prove your worth. And again, not at a time where like talking about identity is either encouraged or allowed and to say, hey, I'm just going to keep my head down and make partner and, and that's going to change how I can take care of my family. And, and that's totally OK. Obviously, in hindsight, you've, you've pivoted into community work. But any idea back then the power of what you were studying and what you were practicing? You know, I have to say to a certain extent, yes. Right. 
Um, and part of this was, uh, again, being a little bit geeky, I did you know, high school debate and, and things along those lines. So in that sense, in the context of debate, in the Congress of what's called congressional debate, I, I knew that sort of laws could make a difference, right? Uh, and, and so that was in the back of my mind. Again, to be clear, right, when I was going into law school, why was I doing it? It was a quote-unquote safe choice. Uh, you know, it was a choice that I think my parents certainly thought, oh, okay, this is okay. You know, it's not med school, but it's okay, right? I, it, we did feed into that stereotype. Uh, and certainly, you're right, the upwardly mobile part, it was safe. But then I, I will, and this is not meant to be just, you know, like, self-serving there was part of me that's like i this this is kind of cool because it's i saw like i said i actually did get a glimpse of what it could do right even for our own family so this notion of understanding this more just like the intellectual curiosity of it actually drove drove the the decision just as much as anything else did yeah and, and i think it's important you know for for folks that are listening that i think there's this sort of pressure that we either put on ourselves or that we make up in our heads that like pursuing professional excellence is at the expense of doing something good for the community. Right. Um, I, I have the great fortune of speaking to, you know, business school students from top programs and there's this almost like, am I doing enough? Or like, if I go work for a shiny logo and, and get my check, like, am I not being a cu good community member? Right. Like, should I drop this and go do something good? And, you know, I think there's a lot of just collective guilt over that, to be honest with you. And I'm sure it happens in law school. It happens in different circles where, and then, you know, my, my message to them and love to hear yours, John, is like, go make your money and use that money for good. Go into those rooms of places of influence and change the culture inside so that they do less harm on our communities. Because we, we still have to have inside people and wealth is as long, and we're not going to change capitalism, right? So if we assume that, then we still need to use money as a tool to support the organizations that matter to us, the political candidates that, you know, align to whatever your values are. And even just to go down to the street and then to go to the local Taiwanese or, you know, Vietnamese restaurants and put money in their pockets, right? Because we, we have the power to do that. And, and, and I think as, as polarizing as, as our country has, has seemed the last couple of years, there is this sort of like, it's capitalist versus everybody. And it's, it's, I, I don't think it's that simple. There's this, and, I, it's tough to explain, but I, I think you can do both. Um, and I think we've yeah. seen a lot of that. I completely agree with that. You you definitely could do both because certainly, so I spent about 16 years at a law firm. Uh, I was a partner at a law firm. And frankly, that firm was at that time, a fairly conservative law firm, but I enjoyed my work. I, I make no bones of it. I was actually doing litigation uh, for insurance companies. Uh, and so that might sound boring. <laughs> it might sound very corporate, very capitalistic. Uh, I could talk about that work and why it wasn't, you know, if you want me to. But but more than anything, I, I enjoyed the work. But the firm was also very good about letting me do other stuff. Like So I was always involved in the Asian American community from a pretty early time at the law firm. Mm. And whether it was just hosting meetings at our firm, Right? Because if you think about some of our community organizations, you know, even having a conference room where drinks and cookies are given right, means something yeah. and is something that, that is useful. And so for me, that was one way of giving back, even at a quote-unquote early age, mm. uh, was, was to be able to be involved in that way. Then it was getting, getting involved and in serving on boards from some of the local organizations. 
but but you're absolutely right. It's you know you need people in all of the different walks of life. Uh, you know, as much as we rail against capitalism, we rail against the structure, and we've tried to change the structure. Uh, there are times that we need to work within it, and so we need to be have people in the Fortune 50 companies and in the C-suites of the Fortune 50 companies. We need partners at law firms. We need people everywhere, right? And we need them to be connected with each other. I, I think one of the other things that, uh, again, it wasn't necessarily by uh, deliberate choice, but ended up happening that was really great was I made these wonderful connections at a, at a conservative law firm that now the work that I do, some of them I encounter, we might still disagree politically, but at least we can work together and we could get some progress made. If you think about anti-Asian violence, you know, that's an area where we can make some pro- progress in the sense that you know, that doesn't have to be a political issue. You know, there are going to be conservatives that say, yeah, this is wrong. Maybe their solutions might be a little bit different, but we can get them to speak out about it at least, right? And, and so in that sense, you know, there are times that sort of you, these connections are just exceedingly powerful if you let them be. I 100% agree. Um... You know, as somebody who has, similar to John, transitioned from what we would consider traditional corporate life into something that is extremely non-traditional in, in the way that we provide for our families and impact the community, um, you, you have so much more agency, folks, than, than I think you realize. You know, we talk about transferable skills a lot in the open marketplace, and everything that you are learning and, and doing now, you can use for greater good. And, you know, if, if making a ton of money and then putting it into resources is the way you want to do it, do that. Um Tell us about the transition. So we, we now know you as uh, the face of the um, you know advocacy movement in many circles, and folks have seen your name and your face so much so that they mistook uh, former presidential candidate Andrew Yang for you because I think you were a familiar name in some of these newsrooms. Um, <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's the John Yang they were talking about when they mislabeled him. But h- how did you transition into that work and then you know give a glimpse of sort of uh, what the organization does that spoke to you in, in your transition to this work? Sure. At first, I should say it's interesting. I'm still to this day not sure if they confused me for Andrew Yang because of me, or there's actually a there was used to be a Washington Post reporter by the name of John E. Yang. I'm, oh, I'm interesting. John C. Yang, and and it's funny because he used to be based in the D.C. And the two of us would get together. We got together for lunch a couple of times <laughs> because we had been confused for each other in D.C. on numerous occasions. Uh, anyway, how I transitioned into this work? It's interesting. Because I had spent, like I said, about 16 years at a law firm, went overseas with my wife uh, to work in Shanghai. I worked in Shanghai, China as an in-house counsel for a corporation, came back to the States, worked for the Obama administration, but actually it was in commerce and economics. It was not in civil rights. I, I was Secretary Pritzker's senior advisor for Asia, working on Asia trade issues. And it wasn't until the election of President Trump, then President Trump, that I devoted full time into civil rights with advancing justice. The reason I made that direct tra- transition was literally because of President Trump's campaign. You know, when he announced that he was running for president, and you may remember this, Jerry, is his first speech. He said that he wanted to make America great again, and he wanted to get uh, get rid of uh, the illegal aliens that were gangsters, rapists, and drains on our society. Now, you know, he was probably talking about Mexican-Americans. I mean, he wasn't talking about East Asian-Americans, but that really, really I took personally, right? Because again, I was an undocumented immigrant, so-called illegal alien, 
But in that time, especially when he made that announcement, I was literally negotiating on behalf of the United States uh, in trade deals and the like. And to suggest that somehow I was a drain on our society, I took it very personally, right? And so uh, when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do next, this opportunity came along. This was an organization that I had served on the board for. I had been involved with in different ways. I knew it well. And I thought, hmm, this is a good time to really lean into this moment and give use this different skills that I've accumulated, both in the corporate setting as well as the nonprofit setting, to take this organization and move it forward. I think you, many of us remember that time well, and it was just sort of disbelief after disbelief of, you know, holy crap, this is really happening. Um, and then so you obviously, you know, with the transition in administration, you were looking for a, a transition in role. What, what about the work that Asian Americans Advancing Justice was doing at the time? And this was pre, none of us knew what was about to happen, right? And, and how impactful the organization would be on our community. But what was the primary mission and sort of the values of the org that spoke to you that you felt excited to hang your hat at? Mm -hmm. At core, it's a civil rights organization. Immigration, voting rights have always been at the core of what it does. Even anti-Asian hate, although in 2016, 2017, we were not seeing the pandemic around the corner. Right. But we could see that xenophobia already. We could see that sort of race baiting happening already. So those were core pieces of this organization that I, I could see being impacted. And actually for me, it was having worked in China uh, and sort of seeing how sort of foreign tensions with the Chinese government, I just knew was going to have an impact here in terms of you know the racial relations, especially for the a Asian American community. Mm. I, there's just something about all, all, all that moment that I knew we should lean into it. We need to lean into it. Uh, so those are the things that resonated with me. And, and like I said, one of the things I always appreciate about uh, Advancing Justice AJC that where I try to steer the organization is also that, you know, we are clearly progressive in value. There's no question about that. You know, if you look at the stance that we take, uh, we are we are very progressive. Uh, at the same time, what we always try to do is find ways to work with people and, and speak with a voice that allows us to reach across the aisle when we need to. Um, yes, we're a DC-based organization, so, so that's part of the reason we do that. But it made sense to me because at this time, even in 2016, we were seeing that polarization. You know, the notion of trying to bring people together, the notion that, you know, even where we disagree on issues, even hard issues like immigration, that's there's no reason to demonize the other group, so to speak, right? Uh, and I just felt that, that this was an organization that has always tried to do that, uh, and I want to lean into that. And how do you feel about it now? It's been, it's been five plus years, right? Of ups, downs. Um, I mean, it may be an obvious question, but how do you feel about the choice that you made, not knowing what the last three years were going to be like? I feel blessed hmm. uh, that I made the choice that I did. I feel blessed that sort of I have the support of my family to do this. And that I'm in a position that I can even, frankly, I can afford to do this, right? Because I, I think we're, we, we are living in this moment where 
we all, again, to your point, we all can lean in in different ways. And, and you know, I'm able to lean in in this way. Uh, one thing I, I sort of keep in my mind also is I have two kids, uh, one that's 13, one that's actually just turned 10 uh, uh, over this past weekend. And I think about sort of what kind of values I want to give to them and what kind of world I want to leave for them. And so to be able to do this work over the last few years and have them see me do this work, have them sort of me be able to show them, you know, when I testify on the Hill or do an interview, right. And to be able to explain what it is that I'm doing, that is just personally very rewarding too. Right. And how, so you do a lot of interviews. Um, Obviously you, you know, advancing justice is one of the, uh, you know, top of mind organizations and, through the pandemic and through a lot of the, you know, anti-Asian hate stuff, you, you've been called upon to uh, speak for the community, share what resources are being developed and, you know, where people can, can help. How, how's that been for, for you? And, you know, um, cause I often just, the world is so unpredictable and, and I, I choose my words there carefully. Um, but, you know, has that been okay for you to handle? And just, has there been a lot of public responses? Um, I mean, it, it doesn't compare, but our podcast was featured by Apple last year during May as like, you know, pot, Asian American podcast used to listen to our ratings drop by a point and a half on a scale of five, because I assume people just couldn't stand the idea of us being celebrated. So they just gave me a bunch of crappy ratings. And I, I am not as public as you in, in the way that I, you know, speak about the community. But, you know, I have gotten some, you know, messages that are startling. And, and you know, uh, has that been okay for you and your family to sort of be the face of the community in certain circles? Well, thank you for asking. Uh, and it has been okay. I mean, I think, again, this is these are values that are important to us, and we choose to, to live them in this way. And again, this is where I do want to emphasize, I, I do recognize this is not for everyone. Mm. And so for people that don't want to be as public, that's okay too. Yeah. Uh, find ways to contribute for yourself, right? Uh, the only thing I ask of people is please do contribute to the community in some way. And that could be in any number of ways, right? Even if it's just quote, just quote, unquote, working at a food kitchen, right? <laughs> that is meaningful. That is meaningful. And so in that sense, it's, it's been, again, it's been rewarding. I mean, it's been challenging at times, but, but it has been rewarding. I think the other thing that always sort of resonates with me is thinking about how I, I want our community to be represented because, you know, you, it's interesting you say sort of speaking for the Asian American community. And I'm sure you have the same sort of thing that goes through your mind. It's like, who is the Asian American community? Who am I to speak for the Asian American community, right? I'm an East Asian male. You know, that's on one hand, the, the prototypical stereotype, but that's also part of the, the problem with sort of how you view Asian Americans. Uh, and so how do I use the voice that I have to make sure I'm lifting up all of the Asian American community? And making sure that people see the different voices uh, and to understand the issues a little bit more fully. So I think that's the other aspect that is both rewarding, but also challenging that uh, I certainly don't take lightly. And I know you don't either. It's it's tough. Um, I, I think there's so many thoughts that cross, even imposter syndrome. You know, who am I to do this work? Do I have enough credibility Am I actually being impactful? You know, you, you have a, a very large team and obviously you have to run, you know, yes, it's a nonprofit, but run the organization, right? You have to make sure that 
people are being taken care of. And, you know, there's a tactical side of that, you know, as for me, like, this is a business that takes care of my family. And so, yes, I want to uplift the community, but I have to make sure that it makes financial sense for me to continue to do this work and all these things that cross. And I think at the end of the day, um, I don't even actually know the impact that I'm having in this world. I, I get reminded from time to time through external points of validation or notes from people. And I want to ask you, what, what are some of the, you know, the coolest or the most heartwarming moments of the last few years where you're like, damn it, I just have to keep on doing this. Or I know, I know, I know you know, some of the challenging days are really, you know, challenging and you have to, you know, talk to families and, you know, all these things. But what, what are the moments where somebody or the community has really reminded you that you are doing far more than sometimes we even are aware of? Yeah, that's a great question. During the pandemic, I don't know if this was true for you, we ended up doing family walks and the like, you know, to, to get some fresh air, et cetera. Uh, and that's obviously at the same time as we saw the spike in anti-Asian violence. So I was doing a fair bit of media. Hmm. Uh, one walk, uh, one of our neighbors that lives a couple of streets over that we knew not very well, but we knew decently well, said, I saw you on TV Thank you for doing what you're doing. And please know that not all white Americans are like that. You know? And she was, I mean, she, she was white, she was Caucasian. But the fact that sort of she was so open and she was just like, oh, thank you for doing this. And, you know, sort of that feeling of allyship, that's what it was, right? Was that, that we had an ally that, you know, otherwise I might not have known it, but mm. it obviously resonated with her. Uh, so there are, Moments like that, you know, uh, when I speak at schools, um, I did an event at a high school and just seeing these Asian American kids, right, uh, see their voice, uh, that really resonates. And, and you notice I say see, see their voice. You use the term using their voice as well. Uh, and, and that is something that resonates. It's like it's Senator Hirono once said, when in response to a, a person that said, oh, how did you find your voice? She said, well, I didn't find my voice. I always had my voice. It's a question mm -hmm. of how I decided to use my voice, right? And I agree with that sentiment, the sentiment that, that we all have to find, uh, we have to find ways to use our voice. But it's not a question of us never having a voice, right? Because if we do think we don't have a voice, then we're working from a deficit. It's, it's actually just thinking about how we want to use what we have. And on that note, how has your work been amplified and then how, from your perspective, has our community been fired up, encouraged, or activated to, to use that voice for good? You know, during 2020 and 2021, it almost seemed, you know, just the knee-jerk reaction for corporations and, and for other organizations was, hey, let's, you know, let's, uh, I mean, I got busy, right? Like, hey, let's bring an Asian American speaker for APAM and, you know, maybe that will help something at doesn't, but, you know, they think it does. And, you know, they partnered with organizations like yours and, you know, and then just overall, there was this really great moment in, in the midst of, you know, terrible things. But I, I took that away as there's never really been a better time now. And we have to take advantage of this moment so that we can codify some of these things that people are feeling in the moment to say, hey, our work is important. We've been doing this for a long time. And, and how do we how do we use this moment so that we never have to do this again? Um, yeah. And then mm -hmm. how's that been for you? And, you know, um, has the energy sustained? It's been, you know, a year or two. My biggest fear was that it would be a spike because of emotion. And then organizations, companies, and people go back 
to their busy other, you know, other stressful lives and that we become out of the news cycle. But you, you do this work every day with your team in DC and and, and I want to know what, what that feels like, what has what that has felt like and and your uh you know optimism going forward. Yeah, on one level, I never would want to have the murder of six Asian American women be the reason that we've been able to accomplish policy wins, right? Or we've gotten people motivated to vote. Uh, on the other hand, that something good came out of it is relevant, right? And this is the dichotomy that we face. Because, you know, over these last few years, uh, we did have the COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act that was passed that, that, that we have been working on. Frankly, this hate crimes legislation, a number of organizations, not just Asian American organizations, a number of organizations have been working on for a long time. But we were finally able to get it over the finish line uh, because of the increased attention that we had, right? So that's a positive. You know, the fact that we have what, over 100,000 people that have taken bystander intervention training and learn the tools if they see an act of hate what they can do about it and to be able to use that you know that's meaningful uh you know in terms of going back to where we were again i'm i'm overall an optimist about this and i'm i'm very modest about what we should expect and what i mean by this is this is are we have we gone back in terms of not receiving as much as attention as we did in 2021 yes we have but there's a new benchmark because we're not where we were in 2019 or 2018. You know, and this is, again, where the power of Asian Americans working at companies makes a difference. The number of employee resource groups, you know, what are called ERGs, that have popped up at these large companies and have demanded change, demanded to have speakers like you or me or others, right? They're fostering something a little bit different. You know, and in that sense, is that enough? No, it's not enough. Is that Should that be the end line for these corporations? Absolutely not. But the fact that the corporations realize that they need to respond, they need to understand the, our community better, and they're listening to Asian American employees, I all see that as as very positive movement. Mm. And we want to sustain that. We want to make sure, and this is where I feel confident, is we know that the, the enthusiasm at a number of these uh, these employee resource groups, these employees at various places, the enthusiasm of our general populace is has not subsided. They recognize that this is an issue that we need to continue to push. And so in that sense, you know, although it might diminish a little bit from the front page headlines or the mainstream media, I feel pretty confident about the work that is being done, how people are invested in it, uh, and the progress that we could continue to make. You know, again, uh, is is there more that we can do? Absolutely. But uh, people should feel comfortable that that, that work is sl still getting done. We're building up that infrastructure in a different way. And how can the average person help with the work that you're doing? If, if you're listening to this the week that the episode airs um, or on the day that it airs, it is uh, October 18th, this Friday in D.C. at the National Press Club. You're holding your American Courage Awards uh, for the first time in person in in a few years, and and handing out you know awards to some uh, pretty cool friends of ours, Senator Hirono, Kathleen Kim, who is responsible for Chiang, the Korean American puppet on Sesame Street, and uh, Park and Lee, and and um, and a few surprise other honorees. Obviously, people can you know show up or contribute 
and there's been a, a look at I me mean, looking at the list of organizations that are sponsoring it's just really really amazing how, how can we help and, and how can we you know whether it is to financial donations or you know participating in programs or inviting the organization to partner with the companies that we work at um, how can we help yeah on one hand certainly I would never turn down a financial contribution but I actually think that if you can connect with us if you're interested in helping just connect with us and we can try to figure out how best for you to help you know, it depends on where you are. Like if you're sitting at a corporation, uh, then it may be a question about how do we bring greater awareness of Asian American issues to that corporation? If you are working at another nonprofit, is how can we help you as a nonprofit, right? Because I, one of the things is our community has so many needs. And for us at AHAC, part of that is also helping to build a better infrastructure for our grassroots organizations. The, you know, the the Chinese American Service Leagues in Chicago, or the you know the the uh, uh, the the Marshall Lee Society in Arkansas, you know there are some organizations doing wonderful work, and I would love to continue to raise up their profiles. And so part of that is just figuring out how to partner together. And then if you're not sure, you know, if you're a student and you're not sure about sort of what your next path is, you know, whether it's to reach out to us or us helping to connect you with sort of your local organizations that have these types of conversations that we're having, Jerry, right? To th- figure out, like, how do you best contribute? And, you know, how you contribute as a, you know, college student versus a young lawyer versus a partner at a firm versus someone that's in a C-suite or versus someone that's at a nonprofit all looks very different. But there are different ways that you can contribute. The, the, again, uh, what I always go back to is, as long as you contribute something, you're doing something. You don't need to make the grand gesture all the time. Like when I was a associate at a law firm, it would have been imprudent for me to demand a huge <laughs> amount of change right at that law firm right there. But when I became a partner, yes, I used that platform to talk about more systemic changes at the law. So part of it is an investment, right? And, and think about that as well. I think that audacity that you speak of, right? Um, that's something that I not only hope, but I, I actually just, we're all working towards that, that audacity that many of our younger folks, especially have experienced in the last two years of demanding, almost asking for sure, but demanding and saying, if you're not going to invest in our community, then maybe I don't work here. You know, I just came back from a, a number of conversations with Asian American students at top business schools in the Northeast. And, if you look at the student population or revenue, we'll call them tuition paying revenue people, we're about 20 plus percent of every school. Is that reflected in the way that the school invests in programming, advocacy issues, even DEI programming? Never. Not right now. Not yet. I don't know a school that is doing it right in terms of spending where their constituents are, right? And let's call them who they are, right? Like we pay the tuition, we pay the bills. And I think things are starting to click in a way for schools and students individually, yes, but now being collective and saying, wait a minute, you can't just take our money and not serve us. You can't say like, oh, Asians are not diversity. We can't have that conversation anymore. We can't say like, oh, you know, like Heritage Month is in May and it's a busy time with graduation, so maybe we don't do something for y'all, you know, and whereas maybe... When you went to school or even when I went to school, we're like, okay, you know, 
we're just here to get jobs, right? And then maybe that doesn't really align. What, what I'm hopeful for, and I know will happen because of the conversations that I've had is people are just going to start putting their foot down. And, and before even they go to that school, or even before they start working at that place, people are going to start to ask these questions in these interviews and saying, look, you need me more than I need you at this point. And I need to know, what did you do on March 17th, 2021? What did you do when we needed you? And who did you cut checks to? Show us your receipts. Show us that you actually care. Because if you don't, I don't know if this is a place where I can thrive. And again, like a lot of the points that uh, you made this uh, conversation too, John, is sometimes we need people to go into those organizations, regardless of that fact, and be the change. But I know that's also not for everybody. And so what, what, what I am hopeful for collectively is that we, through, through advocacy work, through voting with our voice or our paychecks or our actual votes, um, we're, we're, we're starting to shift the national and hopefully global conversation on you know, how do we take care of each other? Because I think, to be frank, many of our peers, the educated, the privileged, um, we sometimes think that we don't need to, right? Because yeah. if we live in the right neighborhood or, you know, our kids go to the right school, we have this illusion that it's going to be protecting us. Um, yet we get reminded over and over again that none of that matters. I think that's right. I mean, I think one other thing I would add to that is, you know, yes, we, we want, we should be de- demanding more from from whether it's corporations from places where we work but we should also hold ourselves accountable uh and here one thing i would want to be very very clear about is for our us as asian americans we need to be good allies too especially to the african-american community the lgbtq community the hispanic american community uh because if we're asking them to show up for us we need to show up for them and we should be honest with ourselves sometimes we haven't right uh and, and so you know, and when we talk about how we contribute back, that's another thing I would ask for is like when we contribute back, it's not necessarily just to the Asian American community. It's to different causes that we do. Yeah. With that, as we close, I got one more uh, question or ask for you, John. Uh, our name of the show is Dear Asian Americans. It is a love letter. It is a encouragement letter to us from us, perhaps in a way that we've never heard before. And so whether you want to think about this from a writing a letter to a younger version of John to your two children growing up in a completely different America that you experience or just to our audience, um, share with us your, your final thoughts, notes of encouragement and inspiration and complete the letter, dear Asian Americans. Dear Asian Americans, I would want you to believe in yourself, believe in what you can accomplish. And that if you set your mind to it, although you will face setbacks at times that you can reach your goals. Always be fierce, always be proud of who you are, and always strive towards the future. Thank you. Um, many ways that you can support John and his work at Advancing Justice. Uh, the website is advancingjustice-aajc.org. If you're listening to it this week on release week and you want to support the event, or if you're in this area and you want to uh, consider going or getting your organization to support, uh, it's americancourageawards.org. Follow them across all the socials. Uh, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, especially LinkedIn, because that's where your employers are hanging out most of the time. And and share the work that they're doing, amplify their work. It doesn't cost a dollar to support an organization. Sure, it helps. But amplifying the work that they're doing already will normalize this conversation. To be frank, I just spent seven days in the road talking about our community at these schools, and it's exhausting. I would prefer not to have to, but we must until we can get to that point. 
that we don't feel like we have to. And so whether you are a student, whether you are uh, an early career person, entrepreneur, know that we have so much agency and power within the current situations that we are in to help our community. And we need the community help just as much as when we are top of the news cycle or when we are not, as it feels like we are today, just out of the news cycle. Again, not to minimize anything that's going on in the world that is equally as important as our issues. But John, thank you so much for the work that you do. Um, You know, again, such a weird thing to say, but it was good seeing you at the White House and maybe I'll see you there again. It's a weird thing that I think would make our parents and our ancestors cry and, you know, be so proud of what we were able to do specifically under the lens of having done work to help each other. And so thank you to uh, everybody who's made this interview possible behind the scenes and continue fighting the good fight. Good luck with the event next week and we'll see you soon. Thank you very much. Want to give a big shout out to John for coming on the show to his team, PR team over at IW group. Thank you to Jenny who made this interview possible. Thank you. It really speaks to how our community has come together and is advocating for each other and really creating opportunities for all of us to share our stories. You can learn more about the work that they do at advancingjustice-aajc.org. That's advancingjustice-aajc.org. Again, there's a lot of regional chapters for Advancing Justice, so make sure that you're going to the right one. You can learn more about the show and listen to all these episodes at DearAsianAmericans.com or find us on Instagram at DearAsianAmericans. You can find me at jerrywan.com and if you want to email me about the show or about anything in general it's jerry at jerrywan.com patrick where can people find you people can find me on instagram at patrick in the world and pretty much anywhere at patrick in the world at this point um including my website and linkedin and in the world if you want to find patrick real life you can go to dallas texas more specifically Carrollton, texas this weekend as his podcast our podcast the Tanchi Show is having our second in real life recording plus listener party. And so you can head over to at Tanchi Show on the Instagram to learn more or go to tanchishow.com slash live. And so you can see and meet and touch Patrick in person <laughs> if you chose choose. And you can do that in Carrollton, Texas. Uh, we got a lot of great things cooking here on the show at the Years of Americans. Some things that we can tell you about, some things that we cannot tell you about. And the things that we cannot tell you about are the more exciting things. Welcome back to the States, Patrick. Would love to uh, digest and talk about your journey and all that good stuff, uh, perhaps on an upcoming episode of the show. But thanks again for joining us, everybody, here on Dear Aged Americans. Continue to stay safe, healthy, and happy. On behalf of Patrick and the entire team here over at Just Like Media, I'm your host, Jerry Wan, and we will see you next time.